This morning we are in our second week of a series we began last week, uh, looking at this idea of ancient wisdom for modern problems. Uh, if you were here last week, I gave you the short saga of the dryer uh, that I've been dealing with. Uh, the good news, uh, last Sunday I did get the part I was expecting, got my dryer up and running. The bad news is that it quit again on me yesterday. Uh, I'm not throwing in the, the, the towel, I'm not waving the white flag yet. I have two more things that I want to try to do to this dryer to resurrect it. Uh, but, but really this series is about looking at how uh, the Bible speaks into our world today. And continuing our efforts to see the truth of God's word uh, and how it shapes even our understanding now. And in an effort to do this this morning, I want to look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you turn your Bibles there this morning, if you want to read along with us, I want to give you just a little bit of background so that we can understand uh, what Paul is speaking to in this letter and how it speaks to us. Uh, Paul is, uh, just in, in this context, uh, in prison in Rome, uh, awaiting his trial, and he knows likely his death, likely his martyrdom. And so this is really kind of a letter of final instructions to his protege, his mentee, who he calls his dear son in the faith, Timothy. As Timothy leads a church and pastors and carries on some of the work that Paul has been doing, we see throughout the New Testament, Paul now writes to Timothy with some kind of final encouragements and challenges and instructions for him and likewise for us. Up to chapter 3, up to this point, Paul has been talking to Timothy about false teachers and uh, the things that uh, get in the way of, of the truth of God's Word. And he's encouraging Timothy to stand firm in the truth and to continue to speak to and minister in the way that he knows is true. And as he continues this thought in chapter 3 this morning, we see that he's kind of giving us some instructions on how to do that, on how to stand for truth. And what wisdom there is in God's Word that speaks into the problems that we see today. But with this in mind, this idea of instructions, I, I full well recognize that following instructions uh, can be challenging. And so I brought some examples this morning of some people who technically follow the instructions, but kind of missed the point a little bit. Uh, the first one, I don't know if you can read that sign, it says, no bicycle parking, which, not a bicycle. Uh, and so they did uh, follow through. Uh, second one, drive through pharmacy. I don't think that's what they had in mind. A technically drive-through, but uh, again, not, not what they're expecting. Uh, third one, thanks for a great year in purple. Uh, I'm sure they did not want in purple on there. I'm sure they wanted the color purple for the words, but I always love a good cake fail. And my last, this one, my favorite one, kids can be such legalists. Find the difference between eight and six. Eight is all curly, six is not. <laughs> it's true. Those are differences between eight and six, probably not what was expected. Uh, but this morning, Paul wants to make sure that because we have a tendency to follow instructions, maybe not so completely at times, Paul wants to make sure we understand the instructions set before us. And, and more importantly than that, he doesn't want us just to merely follow the instructions, to be technically correct, and yet end up missing the point at the same time. So he kind of this morning gives us some instructions about our instructions, and that will make more sense in a few minutes. But I want to kind of jump right in to 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verse 1. Paul says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And I kind of have to press pause already. I know he said we're jumping in, this kind of dipping a toe in the water for a second. But to start here, because when we hear this phrase, last days, I think the connotation or the thing that we often think about is kind of like end times predictions and doomsday prophecies. But biblically speaking, last days is much less sensational, much less fantastical than we tend to make it. 
Biblically speaking, the last days speaks of the period following Jesus' resurrection until he comes again. And so from A.D. 30-ish, when Jesus died and was resurrected, to now, all of that is classified as kind of last days. We see this in Acts 2, at the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' death and, and resurrection, Peter stands before the crowd in Jerusalem. And he explains how the Holy Spirit had come upon the apostles in this moment as they're speaking in, in other languages. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And so Peter is, is pointing this out and, and, and saying that the, the, this prophecy of this coming of the spirit in the last days is taking place because of what Jesus has done. That there's this new era of God revealing himself through the Holy Spirit that will continue until Jesus returns. Peter is not saying, you know, Jesus will be back next week, y'all. No, he's saying, now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit is available to us in, in new and powerful ways. And so as Paul writes to Timothy, and he says there will be terrible times in the last days, he's not saying someday, thousands of years into the future, things are going to get really rough, Timothy. No, he's saying, hey, as you continue to stand firm in your testimony about Jesus' death and resurrection, you're going to face people who oppose you. And you're going to face people who seek to promote only their interests. And so with that in mind, understanding that these problems that Timothy is facing are the same problems that we can face and will continue to face in our world. We can unpause and go to verse 2. The problems that he speaks of, he says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Paul speaks about all of these problems that Timothy would face and that we continue to face, modern problems if you will. And we see that we could take this list and kind of break down all of these different sins and all these different vices detail by detail, but I don't think that's really necessary to get to the point of what Paul is trying to tell us. I mean, really, the entire list can be summed up by these bookends, the lovers of themselves and to be not lovers of God. And anytime we see people love themselves over and above their love for God and their obedience for God, we will see that these problems are the result. And so what do we do when we're faced with these problems? When we see this happening in the world around us, happening maybe even inside the church, when people are interested in themselves and it leads them down a road of sin and despair, what is the solution? Uh, I think about when uh, our oldest son Chandler was little. Uh, he watched a show called Super Why. Uh, and, and the kind of premise, of, it's an educational show about reading, and so his, his teacher mom was okay with it. But uh, the premise of kind of every episode was one of the characters had an issue that they're struggling with. And say, they, they say things like, I, I can't tie my shoes, or, or I don't want to eat my vegetables. And all the super Y and the super readers would get together and say, that's a really super big problem. And I would always think, I mean, if those are super big problems, like, you better buckle up, kids. It's going to go to a whole lot worse. But that's a different discussion. But, but the reason that this is a reading show is because then the super readers would get some kind of story that we all know, Jack and the Beanstalk or something like that, and see how those problems would help these people with their problems then. And in the midst of this, to get to the, the story, the fictional story, they'd say, let's look in a book. 
And they find this character struggling with the same issue and how they solved it. Now, Paul is not super wise, but I do think he echoes the same sentiment. He says, look at all of the sins that will infect the human heart when God is not first and foremost. In other words, I think Paul is saying, these are super big problems. And the solution that he offers is not to let's look in a book, but let's look to the book, the Bible. This is Paul's solution for this. Paul tells us the laundry list of all the difficulties that we will face in following Jesus, all the modern problems. We're going to deal with people who resist the truth. There's a whole list of sinful behaviors and attitudes of these people that would rather pursue their own interests than the things of God. He said we're going to deal with false teachers who oppress. And the chapter before this, 2 Timothy 2, he talks about two men in particular, Hymenaeus and Philetus who are distorting God's word to appeal to people's cultural sensitivities. I know that we have no experience with that. He goes on to talk about those who oppress in verse 8. He says, teachers who oppose the truth. There are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. He says that we'll face hardship and persecution. Verse 10, he says to Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy would have had more than just secondhand knowledge of Paul's persecution. Timothy was from Lystra. He was from the town where Paul had come and begun to preach, and because of his message, he was dragged out of the city and stoned, thro- hurled stones at him by an angry lynch mob, left for dead, only for Paul to get back up and go back into the city to continue to speak and preach. And what's perhaps more alarming even to us is that Paul says we might very likely face the same, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the response to all of these this resistance to truth, these false teachers who mislead and oppress, this hardship and persecution, the answer is the contents of this book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For some of you, this might be a new verse for you. But if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard this verse sometime in the past. And really what this verse is, is kind of the clearest description the Bible has about itself. If you think about some books, how you open up the front cover and they kind of have that flap on the dust jacket about what the book is about, kind of a brief synopsis. 2 Timothy 3.16 could be on the inside of the flap of the Bible if it had one. But this book isn't just a book like any other. In fact, calling it a book probably isn't even the best description. The Bible is actually 66 books written over 1,600 years on three continents by over 40 authors, including shepherds and kings and farmers and priests and prophets and fishermen, even a doctor, some blue-collar workers. And you might think with all of this diversity of, of time and distance and viewpoints that it would be full of errors and discrepancies and inconsistencies and contradictions, and yet the Bible is perfect and its scope and purpose. And the reason for this perfection is because these weren't just 40 authors working on their own accord. Paul says it was God breathed. That the Bible is God revealing who he is and what he desires. 
and just how far he is willing to go to call us back to him. You see, you can look around in nature, you can look at creation, different things, and see that, that someone could have, must have designed these, created these. To see a newborn baby or a sunset or the great and expansive reaches of space. And you can come to conclude that it can't just be random. That there must be a God behind it. But it's only in the Bible that we learn about who that creator is. It's in here that we learn more, that we are more than just a scientific spirit by, by a curious deity. That we are deeply loved children of a triune God. And so Paul says that Scripture is God-breathed, that the Holy Spirit breathed the truth and the character and the heart of God into these pages through the pens of people under His guidance. And I think it's kind of incredible and tells us something about God that He would choose to use imperfect people to create the perfect story of His perfect love. And it's because of this inspiration, because it's God-breathed, that the Bible has reliably stood the test of time. I think just comparing it to other ancient works, the ones that are held, uh, that considered to be extremely reliable. We see the Bible can handle that scrutiny. We have seven, t- uh, seven copies of Plato's Republic, one of the earliest of which being 1,300 years after it was originally written. We have 103 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, the earliest of which being 1,000 years after it was originally written. We have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, the earliest of which being written 2,400 years after the original was written. And yet all of these are considered to be authoritative, at least, in, at least in consistent, and consistent with the works that came before them. And yet compared to that, we have 25,000 copies of the New Testament, the earliest pieces of which we have just 100 years after it was originally written. And the kicker about that is that of the 25,000 manuscript copies we have in the New Testament, all of them are consistent with the New Testament you hold in your hand today. But Paul doesn't just want us to be informed about what the Bible is. Because truth be told, a bunch of facts isn't the greatest weapon that we have against the difficulties that we will face, the modern problems we face. Instead, he also seeks to remind us what the Bible is for. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, it is the answer to the super big problems. And this might not be news to any of you. I mean, some of you have been reading the Bible longer than I have been alive. Uh, one person in first service told me so kindly they have shoes older than I am. And so this might not be new information to you. But it also wasn't new for Timothy to whom Paul is writing. Timothy was what a professor of mine, Matt Proctor, called a Buick, a brought-up-in-church kid. We see that Timothy grew up in the faith. His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice had grown him up in the scriptures. And yet still, Paul reminds him, But as for you, verse 14, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, I think Paul is saying to Timothy, don't think that you have it all figured out. Continue from what you have learned. Don't ever forget the truth of what God has given you and the power that you have at your disposal. And don't ever stop pursuing God through this book. He says it is useful for teaching. Where many would call this book irrelevant or out of date or behind the times, we see that it is useful. Useful for teaching. That there's doctrinal statements about who God is. About how God designed us to live. 
when Kelsey and I were first married, one of the first Christmases uh, we were together, uh, as there, my, our nephew, who was three, uh, about, well, probably four or five at the time, uh, got this new toy that his three-year-old sister wanted to play with, which he didn't want any part of. And so when she came to approach him, he said, show me the constructions. And he opens up this scrap of paper on the floor and he says, not for three-year-olds. And I don't think that's exactly how God puts it, but I do think these words are our constructions. I think they tell us about how we've been designed to live. That God, as our creator, as our constructor, isn't being oppressive in his instructions, but rather telling us how we live and how we work best. It's useful for teaching. Paul says it's also useful for rebuking and correcting. I, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like being told when I'm wrong. But the Bible exposes our weak points. So we are made aware of that we can't do life, at least life to the fullest, on our own without God. And so it speaks into those areas where we think we can do it on our own. And where we go off the rails from how God designed us to live. And it calls us in those moments to trust Him. To put our faith in His ways over our ways. Lastly, we see that it's useful for training. Now, some of you might have started off 2024 with a resolution to get back in shape, maybe to hit the gym again. I know that in my gym, January is always the fullest month. February tapers off a little bit. But I actually jump-started kind of my fitness goals uh, earlier last year before January. But it had been about two years between when I had last worked out and when I started again. And, and if you have had that experience, you kind of know how that goes. I spent a week or two kind of making old man noises every time I moved, getting out of a chair uh, and groaning, walking. Uh, every part of my body is sore. It, training isn't easy. Training stretches us and, and challenges us, and it might even pain us a little. But in being trained in the Word of God, we, became, we become stronger in the work that we are called to do, that it has given us to do. And as I reflect on all the characteristics of the Bible, its inspired nature and its reliability and its longevity and its usefulness, I come to realize that all of these characteristics are true because of, what the nature, because of the nature of what the Bible truly is. It's been said that the Bible isn't a history book, and yet it's historical. The Bible isn't a science book, yet it's scientific. The Bible isn't a fact book, yet it's factual. But I think the Bible, in its reality is a love letter. Now, it's not a mushy, gushy, overly sentimental type of love letter. It's not something reserved for Valentine's Day. But the Bible is a letter from God through human authors describing all of the ways in which he loved them, even when, when, they, when they were unlovely. And it continues to speak to us and how he continues to love us in our unloveliness. You see, the Bible isn't just about facts and figures and dates and manuscripts as much as it is about a person, a man inspired, who wasn't just inspired by God, but truly was God. These pages are about a person. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, the Bible is about the lengths to which God would go to show us his love, even when those lengths led to a cross. And Jesus, who would give up everything to love us and pursue us, even to death. And this is his story. 
And that's why it's possible to read this entire thing, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and still walk away unchanged. Because until you open your heart and your soul and your life to the one about whom this book is written, if you don't do that, it's just a leather book with very shiny pages. The only way that this book will change our lives is if we take to heart the one whom it is about. And so my encouragement to you this morning is simple to say, but difficult to live. My encouragement is don't miss Jesus. I know that even sounds silly to say don't miss Jesus when reading the Bible. It's like, well, I mean, a good portion of it, all of it really is about him. But don't miss his teachings. Don't miss his rebukes, his corrections, his trainings. Because if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. And the last thing I want to encourage you to do as we talk about the Bible these three weeks is to encourage you to get deeper into the Word just for the sake of knowledge. I think knowledge is powerful. I think we do need to know more about God. But if we're reading this just for a gold star on the Sunday school chart and not pursuing the one about whom it is written, then it's useless. So my encouragement is to read this book. Seeking Jesus. In every story, on every page, see about how God is pointing us to Jesus. About how far he would go to call us back so that we could have an eternity with him. Let's pray that we would seek Jesus in this book. Father God, we come before you this morning. And we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. I think sometimes it's easy to become so familiar with the Bible that we miss the incredible aspect that you, God, the God of the universe, who is in no way dependent on us or anything that we can give you, chose to tell us more about yourself, to tell us who you are and the ways that you designed us to live. God, I pray that as we get into your word, maybe if we made this resolution to get into your word more in 2024 and to read it in a deeper way, I pray that we would do so not just for head knowledge, but to see how Jesus is on every page, that all of history is pointing to him and what he's done for us. And as we come to understand him, that he shapes us and transforms us, that he shows us how to live. God, we know that we won't be perfect. But we thank you for your word that teaches us and trains us and rebukes us and corrects us. And tells us about how you've created us to live. God, I pray that by your spirit, we would have the humility to read this book, seeking Jesus, and seeing how you speak into our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name.